I was making the announcements and I go back to sit down and Caleb says, make sure you remind them about the Christmas cookies. So you are doubly reminded about Christmas cookies. So, oh, I love it. <clears throat> you can know what you said. You don't know what people heard. And so uh, he, he perked up when I said Christmas cookies. So wonderful. Gotta love it. Hey, uh, one of the things that's fun is, uh, I, you know, some of you have not lived long enough I think, to realize how much stuff you have accumulated. I used to love the fact that when I was like 22, 23 years old, everything in the world that I owned, I could pack into the back of my 1983 Honda Accord hatchback, and I could be mobile. I was agile. I was gone. I could, I could get things done. Have anybody moved recently? I mean, or in the process of getting ready to move? Oh, my goodness. It seems like it's a godforsaken task because when you have a, a semi truck that you're going to use to move your stuff, you find out really quick who your friends are. You know, if it's a little truck, you have a lot of friends. The bigger the truck is, the less friends you have. And so, one of the things that's just kind of odd for us as Americans is we all have a lot more stuff than we need. Isn't that true? We have a lot more than we need. <clears throat> we have so much stuff, as a matter of fact, that every single person needs this most important document. The most important document that you need is a will because you have so much stuff that if you don't say where your stuff is going to go after you're gone, people will fight over your stuff. And so you have to say, all right, my daughter's going to get the the dining room set and, you know, my son gets the golf clubs and she gets this and somebody else gets this. We don't like to think of this because when we leave, we go to be with the Lord, but our stuff stays behind as long as the earth will exist. And some of those things that we hand down are really kind of precious. I've got two things. I was going to bring them, but we are, um, we're heading out of town for Thanksgiving after uh, the services here today. But I've got a, a cool thing, and I just wish, I wish my grandfather was still alive so I could ask him questions. It's a World War II, uh, it looks like a K-bar. It's like a Bowie knife. It's about this big <clears throat> with a red, white, and blue handle. And you just know, looking at it, there, you know, there's a story behind it. I don't know what, he, he probably just used it to dig a foxhole, you know, or something like that. But in my imagination, that World War II serviceman's knife that was my grandfather's, it won the war, you know, I mean, it, by itself, there's some kind of story behind it. <clears throat> now, how many of you, all right, humor me for a second, how many of you are wearing a wristwatch today? Hold it up. We got two of you? Good. All right. How do the rest of you tell time? You pull out your phone, okay? So some of you, this is an illustration, you will never get it. Some of you are older and wiser. You know what a fop watch is. It's one of those things when men used to wear vests with their coat and they'd pull out this little little watch on a little chain and it had a little clasp on it that would open and close. I have one of those. It was my great, great, great grandfather. So you're probably talking 1830s, 1840s. I'm like, there's got to be a story. I mean, that thing, it like saw the Wright brothers and the Great Depression. You just think about all the history that it's lived. So some of these things that we leave behind are really kind of precious, and we wish that, like, kind of Ancestry.com, you could trace back the history of these things that your family hands down. Here's the question for you this morning. <clears throat> We've been talking for several weeks about building strong families, and we're concluding that today. Um, the official kickoff for Christmas starts next week, and so uh, we kind of extended our series a week to, to, to talk today about being a family that leaves a legacy. And the question is this. 
Is stuff the only stuff that you will leave behind? Is stuff the only stuff that you will leave behind? We don't like to think about our demise, and we don't like to think about the time after our time. But if we want to be families that want to leave a legacy of something really worthwhile, this doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't happen by accident. We can't assume that a legacy will be built on its own. It requires intentionality. And so, will you leave behind various trinkets? Or will you be able to pass on an unshakable faith in the Lord our God? Will you be the kind of person that leaves behind, you know, just a few things? Or the kind of person that leaves behind a dynamic faith? I think this morning, if we asked ourselves the question, what kind of influence did our parents have on us? For good and for bad. If you weren't opposed to public speaking, we could go around here and there would be many a tale that would be told about really sweet, uh, kind-hearted things, ways that our parents have, for good, shaped us in really good ways there'd be some painful experiences that would be shared too because not everyone has had the opportunity to grow up in a family that loved Jesus and sought to do things the right way. And so there is no denying that even for you now, you're thinking about your parents, but as you think about the legacy that you will leave, your finger, you leave emotional fingerprints all over the lives of your kids. We don't think about it until like we stop and we reflect back. And so the truth is there are some ways in which we're shaped in very good ways by our family and ways in which not every legacy is necessarily a good one. So as we talk about building strong families, one of the things that I hope is an encouragement to you is to consider the families of the Bible. Because they're great role models for us when it comes to building strong families, aren't they? No. Adam and Eve, man, they're such great parents that one of their sons killed the other one. So I I don't care how dysfunctional you think your family is, it starts in like the first three chapters of the Bible. It's messed up. You remember um, Abraham? Father of faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, uh, Abraham also listened to his wife who couldn't have kids and said, sleep with my maiden and maybe we'll have kids that way. And then what did he end up doing? He ended up sending Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. He was the original deadbeat dad. You want to talk about a kid that grew up with daddy issues? He's got a dad that didn't want anything to do with him. No child support. And he said, listen, God take care of you. You talk about David. He's the king. He was a high watermark of the Old Testament. Well, he had a son named Absalom who tried to establish a coup d'etat and actually kind of took some of David's multiple wives to himself. There's a realism to the Bible when it talks about family life that I think is encouraging for us because we don't have to have it perfect. If we got it perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior. And so there are lots of stories in the Bible that I think help us to understand, all right, listen, we're not perfect, and that's okay. But this morning, we're going to look at the life of Jacob. Now, we definitely have some questions, some serious questions about his dad's skills, because he plays favorites with Joseph, and what happens to Joseph? He almost gets killed, because of daddy playing favorites. But at the end of his life, He does something in Genesis 49. He blesses his boys as he is about to die. And that account is found in Genesis 49. And basically in this account, what Jacob is doing is on his deathbed, 
he is, he is calling to memory the fact that God has made a promise to his forefather Abraham that he is going to restore the blessing that was lost in Eden and he's going to restore that blessing through Abraham's lineage. And so Jacob and his boys, the 12 sons of Israel, are part of that blessing. And so he is rehearsing this main storyline of Genesis. Uh, Paradise lost, but it will be regained through Abraham. God will be faithful to his promise. And so he calls his sons to him. Let's look at what it says. It's page 38 in the Pew Bible in front of you. The scriptures will also be on the screen behind you. Let's look at verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to chapter 49, verse 28. God's word says this. Then Jacob called his sons and he said, Gather around, and I will tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Come together and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. Verse 28. These are the tribes of Israel, 12 in all. And this was what their father said to them. He blessed them, and he blessed each one with a, my translation says, suitable, suitable blessing. If you've had the privilege of having multiple kids, or you grew up perhaps with multiple siblings, just because you share the same DNA and you have the same mom and dad doesn't mean you're anything alike. You know, it could be USC, it could be Clemson, it could be night, it could be day, it could be sunshine, it could be rain, it could be night out, it could be early bird, it could be squeeze the toothpaste tube at the very end, or just mash it in the middle. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what family you're from, it's not all the same. I mean, your, your kids are not robots that look exactly like you and do everything like you. Some of us go, how in the world do I understand my kids? Well, that's your problem, they're your kids. I mean, they have your DNA. Whatever's wrong with them, you helped, you know. So that, that's, own it, own it. Just, that's it, take it. Um, and so he's, he's, he says that he's about to bless them and he's going to bless them in a way that is appropriate to them. So just think about this here for a second. If, if, if Jesus himself could come down and, and preach this morning, and he said, here's what we're gonna do. All right, we're gonna go one by one. We'll just kind of start here. And now I'm going to give you the blessing that is appropriate to you. What would you hear? What would he say to you? The thing that's interesting, this blessing is 25 verses. Now we know there are how many sons of Israel? There's 12. So um, I'm not good at math, but you take 12. Sorry, I had to work it You take 12 and you divide it by 25. That means basically two verses a kid. Isn't that the way we would do it if we were parents and we're writing out our blessing for our family? You can't play favorites. You've got to make sure everybody's piece of pie is exactly the same. That's not the way it works in the blessing. Not all of the sons are blessed in the exact same way. As a matter of fact, there are two sons that take up almost half of the blessing, Judah and Joseph. There are three sons that get, uh, what is it, about five verses total, uh, Simeon, uh, Levi, and Reuben. And then all the rest of the sons, the other seven sons, they get like 10 verses total together. And so the way that the blessing works out is it is not a generic blessing. You know, I'm going to come here and I'm going to bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. No, it's, it's Reed. It's Thomasina. It's Lucille. It's Lewis. It's specific to each person. And it's, it's an awesome thing to look at because I think one of the things that we have to recognize is we all want to bless our kids 
with a godly legacy. And like, if you don't, don't raise your hand. We don't, want to, we don't know who you are. We all want to bless our kids with a godly legacy. How do we do that? Well, I think as we look at this, we'll see the ways that we can bless our kids with godliness. The first few verses, we'll look at Genesis 49, 3 through 7. And as we look at this and the blessings to uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, <clears throat> we'll see our very first point. One of the ways that we bless our kids is that we have to teach our children that character is the building block of destiny. Character is the building block of destiny. Look with me at uh, verses 3 through 7 of Genesis 49. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength and the firstfruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power. But you are as turbulent as water and you will no longer excel because you got into your father's bed and defiled it. He got into my bed. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter into their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Doesn't sound like much of a blessing here, does it? You get your family all around the table for Thanksgiving. This is not the verse you're going to go to to say, all right, children, I want to, we're going to have a blessing. It's not what you're going to do. But we're seeing here that I think Reuben, Simeon, and Levi have a problem that we have in our world as well. And it's that we confuse the definition of what success is. What's he say about Reuben? You're my firstborn. You're strong, but you're turbulent. Simeon and Levi, man, you're brothers, man. And in your brotherhood, you're wicked. You're going to kill people. And then even if you're not going to take their oxen, you're going to hamstring them. So if you can't use them, ain't nobody else going to use them either. You're wicked. Why did they do that? There was a slight to their family. And uh, the father didn't do anything, so Simeon and Levi took it upon themselves to exact a terrible vengeance. He said, guys, listen. Here's, Here's the good news. You're strong. The problem is you know it, and now you're a bully. And so there's a, there's a blessing. You guys are you're, you're strong. You will have a leadership by just your force of personality. But it's not always good. You see, I think it's really easy in our day and age to think that power is what makes us successful. That your, your socioeconomic worth really is what you're worth. That fame is really the defining measure of your success. And what we've not done is taught people that if they have character as the Bible defines it, then they are successful no matter how many people know their name, no matter how deep their bank account is, that character is what makes someone successful. And that no matter how much money you have or how powerful you are, how much fame you have, if you don't have character, you're a failure according to the Scriptures. And I can't tell you how many stories I hear of of parents who have drugged their kids to church for 18 years only to watch the next 30 or 40 years be lived without any consciousness of who God is. They may not claim to be an atheist, but they sure live like it. Character is not just what you see on the outside, it's what's on the inside. It's what motivates you to be who you are and to do what you do. 
And we can't be confused that power equals character. You see, all three of these siblings, Ruby and Simeon and Levi, by birth order, had a natural leadership over the family, but they get bypassed because of their sin. So here's the question for you. Are you teaching your kid, or your kids, Chris Hefner, Jonathan Brown, Marcy Davis, are you teaching your kids that character counts? Are you teaching them that character is really what is most important? And if you're teaching your kids that character counts, you know what you're going to do? You're going to rebuke them from their, for their sin. You see, I don't know how we can train our kids to live well for Jesus if we skip the first and most elementary lesson that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have it in myself to be good. I need a Savior. And so you cannot bless your kids if you lie to them and let them think that they are the center of the universe. If you let them think that the inclinations of their heart naturally or towards good and godly things, the Bible says the exact opposite. And so to build good character, sometimes we have to have hard conversations about sin. Character is the building block of destiny. In verses 8 through 12, we see the importance of helping our kids understand the crucial need to aspire to leadership. Guys, listen, churches, organizations, businesses all rise and fall with leadership. And, and, and something that I see happening, it happens in, uh, in churches, happens in our church, happens in other churches, is, man, the minute the nominating committee or the deacon nominations start coming up, people start skipping church, because don't pick me. It's like the exact opposite of kickball when you're in elementary. Pick me, pick me, pick me. It's like, don't pick me. I don't want to serve, because I don't want to be imposed upon. And ultimately, I don't want to do anything for the benefit of others. If it doesn't benefit me, I'm out. We've got to teach our kids that leadership is a good thing. The Bible says to aspire to leadership, if it's godly, is an honorable ambition. And yet we've turned leadership into like a prison sentence. Yeah, done my time. Wow. I thought we were a family, not a prison. So we mentioned leadership bypassed Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, and it was passed on to the fourth son. It's passed on to Judah. Let's see what God's word says here about Judah, verses 8 through 12. Judah, <clears throat> your brothers will praise you, and your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? And uh, listen to this. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He wa- he's so rich he washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. All three of his older brothers led, but they led into sin. And Judah is going to be the leader par excellence of his brothers. You see, we know that Judah right now is not the leader, but he's having this prophecy prophesied over him. And there are two really fascinating things that happen with Judah's leadership. The high watermark watermark of the Old Testament, um, David and his rulership, comes from Judah's line. So nationalistically, the Jews have tons to be. And by the way, in, in case you didn't know that, The name Jews comes from Judah. They're not called 
well, they're called the Israelites now because there's a nation of Israel. But the ethno-linguistic group, the Jews, are because Judah's the only tribe that really kind of survived in mass throughout biblical history. And so the Jews have lots to be proud of because the best ruler, the golden age of prosperity, came from uh, King David. They came from Judah's line. But even more important, in verse 10, we're told that the scepter will not depart, that the staff will never go away. And I love the way it says, until he whose right it is comes in the obedience of the peoples, not the Jewish peoples, not the tribe of Judah people, not the whole nation of Israel, the peoples, all the peoples, until he who comes whose right it is in the obedience of all the peoples belongs to him. Because not just King David, the earthly king, came, But the ultimate king, King Jesus, derives his lineage from Judah's line. And so here you have, in contrast here, real quickly, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, who are grasping for power. They're grasping for leadership by their defiling their father's bed, by exacting vengeance that the father didn't do. We don't like your leadership, so we're going to do something. The problem is what they did was really bad. And here you have Judah, who's very humble, and not grasping for power or leadership, and it's given to him. Isn't that really interesting that the more you try to grab for leadership, the more it kind of slips through your fingers, but the more you're just willing to do what is right for others and for God, you're given more leadership? That's why people in the church who are, are busy in leadership usually get asked to do more, because God has blessed them, and the people who never do anything never get asked to do anything because they've never done anything. God enables people who are faithful to have more time. I don't know how they do it, but they have like 28 hours in their day, you know, and they're able to get things done. You go, man, how can they serve as much as they do? And they're happy about it because to he who is faithful with little, guess what happens? He'll be faithful with much. So I don't know how that leadership equation works out that people who are busy and good leaders, not just busy buddies, but good leaders, they get always asked to do something else. And God enables them to be able to do it. And so leadership is not something, according to this world standard, that we can grasp after and struggle for. It's something that, like the ultimate king, Jesus, who came to lay down his life for others, it's an act of humility and of service. That's the kind of leadership we need to encourage our kids to aspire to. There used to be a day and age where it would have been okay. It would have been okay for your kid to go with the crowd. Okay? Now, I didn't, I didn't live in the 1950s, but I'm told that the chief violation in school was running in the hallway and chewing gum. Okay? You can giggle at that. That's a little bit funny. You know, I, I, there's a, someone here at our church that said that his high school, when he graduated from high school, was one of the first high schools in the nation with a, with a um, preschool so that all the pregnant teenagers could go to school and have their kids taken care of. I think I'd go back to running in the hallway and chewing gum as being a big problem. And here's the issue. Our culture has spat in the face of God. We don't want anything to do with him, his authority, or his word. And so you need to be praying for your kid to be a leader. You may be a type B personality. You may not like the limelight. And I'm not saying that your kid needs to be the president of a Fortune 500 company, but they had better be a leader because if they're not a leader in this culture, they'll be a loser. And they'll walk away from what God wants for them unless they have the integrity to stand and to lead their friends. So pray for your kids to be leaders. Pray for them to have character. And when we say leadership, we're not talking about leading an organization, but that they have the ability to stand and follow Christ regardless of the circumstances that are around them. That's what he's saying he's praying for for Judah. 
Now, after we get past the first three sons, with the exception of Joseph in a few minutes, all of the rest of the blessings are really short. They're really short. But they all teach a very similar principle that is this, that we should instruct our children not to evade endurance. Not to evade endurance, because hard work is frequently required for great endeavors. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anything that I have done that has been noble or worthy that didn't require a lot of hard work. You know, reaching level 500 on Halo, that took some time. You know, not a noble cause. I know you saved the, the universe, big guy, but um, let's kind of bring it back down because we're, we're in danger of losing this mentality that hard work is a noble thing. You know, we, we think, you know, uh, next American Idol, I'm going to make it big and everybody's going to know my name. You know, I'm going to be on TV. I'm a, you know, everyone's going to know who I am. And we don't work hard for things anymore. We expect things to be given to us. And we see this all throughout his prophecies related to these other boys. And guys, we have to understand, hard work is not a bad thing. In order for each of um, Jacob's boys to play the role that God had for them, they each had a different thing that they were going to do. And for these seven boys that we're about to read over, it all required hard work. That's the only common denominator that I can see through them. So to bless our kids, we have to remind them who God has made them to be. And they're not to be like their older brother or older sister. They're to be them. They're to be them. And God has a specific purpose for their life. So follow along with me. We're going to read 13 through 17, 19 through 21, and then 27. He starts in verse 13. By the way, the Bible uses, this is kind of poetic language, so there's a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolism. Um, so just, you got to interpret it carefully, okay? There's some really weird ways we could go sideways with this, so I'll try to keep us on the right path here. We start in verse 13. He says, Zebulun, We'll live by the seashore and we'll be a harbor for ships, but his territory will be next to Sidon. We're told that Zebulun will be a hard worker and profitable in trade. He's going to be at a crossroads where people on the inland want what the traders are bringing by the ocean and they're going to be right there to kind of deal deal with all that. They're going to work hard. They're going to endure. Verse 14 through 15 is Issachar. I love this. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey. That does not sound like a blessing to me at all. But a donkey was an honorable... (laughs) And be thankful we're not reading the King James, okay? Um, Y'all figure that out later. Some of you are going to start looking at your other translations on your phone now. Issachar is a strong donkey. That's a noble animal. It's a beast of burden. It works hard. There are a strong donkey lying down between the saddlebags. And he saw that his resting place was good and that the land was pleasant and he leaned his shoulder to bear a load and became a forced laborer. What's the number one rule of real estate? Location, location, location. Well, Issachar has found out he's got the best location. And you know what? He's going to have to work hard to stay there. And so he says, you know what? This is where I want to be. So I'll pay the price. I'll work hard. I'll put my shoulder to the plow to work hard. I'm not going to evade endurance. I'm going to work hard. Verses 16 and 17. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. He will be like a snake by the road. Again, when we hear somebody call someone a snake, that's not generally a compliment. Okay, so follow this. Dan will judge his people. And judge does not mean like, that's not a bad thing. There's a book in the Bible called Judges. And they don't have wigs and gavels. They are deliverers. Samson, Gideon, Barak. 
Um, they're all deliverers. And so he says, Dan will be a judge, a deliverer for his people, as one of the tribes of Israel. He'll be like a snake by the road, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels and its riders fall backwards. Dan's one of the smallest tribes. And they say, when people come to invade Israel, they'll be like a snake by the path. So when their horses and their chariots come, they'll turn them back. That's a pretty cool little metaphor. It's not bad. He's not, you know, husbands don't at Thanksgiving say, you know, I'll bless my family. Wife, you are like a snake. She's not going to think that's a compliment. Don't do it. And so he's saying there's all this work. There's defense. There's fighting. There's all kinds of things. Verse 19, Gad will be attacked by raiders, but he will attack their heels. Gad's going to, he's going to be victorious, but it's not going to be without loss. He's going to win some. He's going to lose some, but he's going to end up victorious. Verse 20, Asher, his food will be rich and he will produce royal delicacies. Asher's got the most fertile land of all the tribes of Israel. And what's he do with it? He produces things for the king. Delicacies. He's working by cooking. Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe uh, set free that bears beautiful fawns. Uh, This is kind of a positive image because a deer's not negative unless it's hunting season. And so a deer is graceful. And the idea given here, uh, doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Naphtali will be a swift messenger of good news. Verse 27, Benjamin. Benjamin's like a wolf. He tears his prey. In the morning, he devours the prey. And in the evening, he divides the plunder. He's a wolf that's capable of hunting. And he's going to be so successful in his hunting that he'll have leftover stuff that he can divide it up and share it with his brothers. All of these are pictures of hard work, of enduring and doing what needs to happen. And so in God's economy, hard work is a blessing. Teach your kids that they can. They can work hard. It is not an issue of ability. It's an issue of will. And I'm afraid that we're losing the virtue of hard work. Teach them not to work to earn a paycheck or an accolade, but teach them to work to honor the God that has given them the abilities and the skills and the talents that they have. In verses 18 and 22 through 26, we see that we need to communicate that our salvation in Christ is the greatest blessing of all the blessings you can receive. Salvation in Christ is the best. In verse 18, it's like Jacob can't wait to get to worshiping. He says in verse 18, kind of a random statement, I wait for your salvation, Lord. And in verses 22 through 26, he thinks of the most immediate thing that comes to mind when he thinks about the salvation of the Lord and he thinks about his son Joseph and how Joseph saved his entire family from starving. Listen to what it says. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine beside a spring. Its branches climb over the wall. The archers attacked him and shot at him and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained strong and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you, by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lie below, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father excel the blessings of my ancestors and the bounty of the eternal hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the prince of his brothers. Why does this make him think of salvation? Because we remember the Joseph story. Joseph had a dream that his brothers would bow down to him. And his brothers hated the dream so much that they wanted to kill him but ended up settling to sell him into slavery. He goes to Egypt. And everything Joseph does is blessed. 
He rises to prominence. But then there's things that happen that he always kind of gets put in his place. And, and yet, through it all, Joseph never loses his faith in God. And God highly exalts him to a place that he becomes uh, in control of Egypt. And he predicts accurately through dreams the seven years of fortune and the seven years of famine. And then his brothers who think that he's dead eventually come and bow to this Egyptian taskmaster to get grain and get wheat. And then they realize who each other is. And Joseph can say, what you intended for evil, you archers who attacked and shot at me, God has strengthened me through all of the terrible things that you did to me and the Egyptians did to me so that I can be a deliverer, a savior for my people. So go get dad and you guys need to move to Egypt. God saved them. And so Joseph becomes a prototype for the salvation that we will get in Christ. The the food that the wheat and the bread of this world can never satisfy, that the things that the, the Red Bulls and the monster energy drinks that this world gives are nothing like the living water that God gives that you drink from and you'll never thirst again. He provides salvation. Joseph's strength was not internal. It comes from the Lord. And it says with all of these languages about who God is, the mighty one, the shepherd, the rock, the God of your father, the almighty who blesses you to the ends of the earth. He's the one that did this. So when you sit down on Thursday, I don't know what time you eat, you know, midday, mid-afternoon, that evening, and you sit down to count your blessings with your family. How do you communicate that the gospel is the greatest blessing of all? Do you believe it? Do you believe that the gospel is the greatest blessing possible? Then don't be tepid with communicating that to your kids. Don't ever exalt stuff over salvation. We close in verses 29 through 32, and we see Jacob on his deathbed and the importance of modeling a steadfast hope in the promises of God. Listen to what he says. Then Jacob commanded them. He said, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The cave is in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in the land of Canaan. This is the field that Abraham purchased for me from the Hittite as a burial site. Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried there. Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried there. And I buried Leah there. The field and the cave in it were purchased from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished instructing his sons, he drew his feet into the bed. And he died and he was gathered to his people. How does this show a steadfast hope? You remember, there's a huge famine that's going on. And they've had to leave the promised land of Canaan to go to Egypt because God had sent Joseph ahead as a deliverer. So now, Jacob and all of his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel represented in those sons, are refugees in a foreign land. They're not fleeing like Syria because of war. They're fleeing because of famine. There's no food, and if they stay, they die. So they're now in Egypt as in a... They're, basically captive in a foreign country. And Jacob says, I'm about to die. He says, make sure when you get back there, bury me in Abraham's cave. Bury me where my fathers are. Bury me where Abraham purchased property. The only piece of property that Abraham owned in the promised land was his 
cemetery plot. But yet, they believed that this was the land that God had given to them. And on his death, though he would never see it, Jacob said, that's our land. That is our land. And God is going to get us there. And I believe the promises of God. So promise me with my last breath that you will bury me there. Leaving a legacy of blessings for our kids means that we believe what God has promised. So there are two essential things that we want to pass on to our kids. We want to pass on our values. We want to pass on character and hard work. And we want, to, we want to help them think biblically about culture, that the way the culture defines success and the way the Bible defines success are radically different. We want to pass on our values. And one of the ways that we pass on our values is by our example that we leave of following Jesus. And so here's the challenge for you. Do you leave an example for your kids of practicing holy habits as you follow Jesus? That means like when you leave church, you don't talk about church people. You know, hey, bless your heart, brother. Man, he's a dirty, rotten scoundrel. You know, when you get in the car. It means that the way that you talk about people away from church is the way that you talk about people at church. It means that you pray with your kids besides at mealtimes. We're going to do this, okay? We are going to do this. Reed will hold me accountable. We're not going to do it right now because you will cheat. Um, but we're going to ask our kids, how often do you pray with your parents outside of mealtimes? And you know what we will find out? You know what we will find out? We will be so embarrassed. Kids, how many of you, we asked Scott to ask the kids, how many of you um, read the Bible with your family regularly? Listen, I'd be satisfied if we read the Bible regularly personally. You know? But now we say, you read it together? You just knocked about 90% of your people out of consideration. So there's something to be said about, listen, going into your little prayer closet, you know, opening up your word and doing that privately. We don't do what we do for show. But there are plenty of people that, again, have drugged their kid to church only to watch them completely walk away from the faith when they don't get drugged to church anymore. So there has to be a way that we pass on our values by setting an example through the holy habits that we have. Here's what I love about this. <clears throat> what does anybody know what Jacob's name means? <clears throat> What's Jacob's name mean? Usurper. All right, let's put that in English. Um, uh, usurper means deceiver. Okay? Now, how many of you, you know, if you have a nickname, like your nickname is Snake, um, that's not good, you know? Yeah, Snake. You know, if your nickname is Tiny, you're probably not. Um, if your nickname is Deceiver, that's really not a good thing, but I want you to hear how the Bible reflects upon the life um, of Jacob. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. Jacob was a deceiver. That was his resume. And yet Hebrews chapter 11, he's included in the hall of the faithful. Why? It's only one verse, and it says, By faith, Jacob blessed his sons. It doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish. 
And so Jacob went from being a dad who had a reputation of kind of blasting people and taking advantage of people and deceiving people and manipulating people. Would you rather be a dad or a mom or a grandmom or a granddad who's known for blasting or one who's known for blessing? The Bible makes clear what we're called to do. And my prayer for you, there's a huge chance you're going to gather with your family on Thursday. And there's a chance to make this holiday a holy day by focusing on the right things. I pray that God gives us the grace and the courage to do it. Lord, with our families and our attempts to build strong, help us to bless. God, we can even think of it as an acronym, building blocks of character and aspiring to godly leadership and enduring hard work and celebrating our salvation and having a steadfast hope in your promises. But God, it doesn't work out quite so neatly in the stuff of life. So God, we just pray and confess ways in which we have not been intentional in passing on the legacy. Some of us have been. But God, there is always opportunity for us to go deeper. And we pray very deeply that we will be a church that is known for blessing our kids, multi-generational blessings of faithfulness to you and to your word and to your people. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.